Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Larry Cherubino can't stop winning awards at the moment, flying all over the world to collect them. So I was lucky to track him down for an in-depth conversation in Perth. Our fascinating chat covered his upbringing on a dairy farm, his Italian roots, an overview of Western Australia's main wine regions, his fascination with clones, his fear of sharks, and why someone pulled a knife on him in the Southern French cooperative. Hello, Larry. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tim. Thank, thanks for having me on. I mean, been quite a month for you, isn't it? You keep winning awards. I can't believe it. every time I open, I open, open a website, you've won another one. Everyone's having Larry overexposure at the moment, but uh, I'll take it. I mean, it's a good. It's been a good year, and particularly when they're international, they mean they mean lots. But you got to go there and pick them up, presumably. Yeah, I had a forty-eight hour turnaround last week. I was in London forty-eight hours, and um, that took its toll. <laughs> but it was good fun. <laughs> yeah, well, at least you're back to spring, right? You know, the clocks have gone back where we are. So. Yeah. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about your your, your background, because you were born, raised in the Swan Valley, uh, but I think on a dairy farm rather than a wine farm. Did you work on the farm? Was was wine anywhere nearby or not? There, there, there were vines. Um, there, there were vines on the farm, but I, I mean, back then as a kid, you're sort of not really interested in, in, <laughs> in uh, like to eat grapes, but not necessarily make wine. So I, primarily, I was just really interested in in agriculture, <laughs> and so. Um, it's something that I wanted to pursue, so I went and studied it. Um, I had a, I had a bit of a year off actually, or a couple of years off in between, and I ended up uh, ended up, you know, working in a winery and then and then overseas. So, you know, since then it's just you know farming sort of. But we are farmers at the end of the day. Great grapes. I mean, I mean, were your parents wine drinkers? Not really. They um they you know everyone in being Italian, everyone sort of made a bit of backyard, you know. Um, bit of backyard plant, as it were, but um, nothing sophisticated, that's for sure. What was the wine scene like in Western Australia at the time? Because it's pretty much focused on the Swan Valley, wasn't it? Yeah, look, Margaret River sort of, you know, in terms of modern viticulture, you know, when I got involved was sort of just expanding. And uh, it was it was a slow expansion. And then obviously towards the end of the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, it really it really grew up a lot, but you know, as far as you know, as far as a region and plantings, it's you know, it's the size of Bordeaux Appalachian, but it's only got you know five percent of the land area under vines or something mm. incredibly small. So it's not a big area um, at all. And, and but in those days, it was pretty much focused on the Swan Valley. So you say Margaret who was just starting with yeah. the doctors, you know, Kevin Cullen and, and Bill Panel and those sorts of people getting involved. Yeah, yeah. So it was you know north of Perth. Um, Swan Valley and you know people dabbling around the place just really lots of trial work back then mm-hmm. and had John Gladstone's done he published his work and that's what led people to Margaret River was it absolutely so John John had uh, published his work and so from that there was quite the expansion in viticulture particularly you know his work was centered around you know homoclines you know what mm-hmm. what you know how the climate here sort of um compares to you know similar climates in europe and so that was the basically the blueprint of what was planted where 
So Margaret River was was a Bordeaux homocline, was it? Um, yes, it, parts of it. I mean, Margaret River is a really interesting place when you think about it because it can grow, you know, excellent Chardonnay and excellent mm-hmm. Cabernet, depending on, on uh, depending on what part of Margaret River that you're in. And, and so the distance between the north and south and southern end of Margaret River is 100 kilometres. So these days um, some of the plantings that sort of occurred in the southern areas, particularly reds, have gone. So there's a big focus of whites, you know, in the south and a lot of reds in the north. So we're growing up a little bit. Hmm. And, and you said your first degree was, I think, was horticulture, wasn't it, rather than viticulture and enology? What yeah. was the plan? Was there a game plan? What do, what do you think you'd end up doing, going back to the family farm? No, well, the, fa- the family farm sort of was sold at that point, so there wasn't an option to go back 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 to any farm really. So, um, and I was sort of making it up as I was going along, but. But uh, yeah, then obviously I got involved in winemaking, um, but, you know, growing growing and farming was always my primary sort of, my you know, my primary love. Mm. So it's, it's just taken a long time to get to the position where we can actually say we're actually growing things and farming things. So, <laughs> yeah. And as you said, you did a vintage as a seller hand at Porton. Was it true that it was your mum who told you to go and do it? Yeah, my mum sort of, I was sort of floundering and, and my and my mum said, look, go and go and do vintage and um, so she lined me up a job and so I did a vintage and then from there I ended up, God, I ended up in Bordeaux and in the south of France, believe it or not. So, and I met a lot of, a lot of Aussies um, when, I ended, when I ended up in the south of France at that time. You can imagine it was sort of exploding down there um, and so, yeah, I just didn't stop. I just didn't stop. I mean, Horton's an interesting place, isn't it? I didn't realise it was founded by three British Army officers and um, are famous for, for making something called White Burgundy, which was not made from Chardonnay, <laughs> probably everything else but Chardonnay. <laughs> Is that true? Shannon Block, Tokay, Semyon. I mean, yeah, lots of different things. But uh, the story of White Burgundy um, came about because as the wine aged, people thought it smelt like old Burgundy, so hence White Burgundy, and that sort of disappeared. The name disappeared as something entirely different, but I made my fair share of – I've made a lot of Burgundy in my time, millions of cases of Burgundy, so, you know. <laughs> but of White Burgundy. Yeah, <laughs> but just in the Swan Valley, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, in modern times it was sourcing um, – you know, fruit from all over the state. So th- that blend sort of became a little more refined in time as well with a bit of cool climate fruit ending up in the blends. So you said that you deferred your degree uh, and you stayed on at Horton and then, you know, the winery's just been a huge part of your story through your life really, isn't it? Yeah, look, you know, it's a bit, it's, it is a bit of a strange one because you sort of go and work there and then, you know, uh, you know, I don't know how many years it took, but, you know, t- 10 or 13 years later you end up running the place. So, um, and there were still people there that I worked with. So that was a bit hard for some of them to handle. But I was only 26 or 27 at the time. And I had, you know, probably arguably what was the most important and biggest selling commercial white wine in the country at that point in time. So there was no pressure. <laughs> what was that? I oh, mean, uh, you know, white burgundy was the singularly the biggest commercial selling bottled white wine in the country at the time. So um, there was a bit of pressure on me um, at 26 or 27 to try and, to try and uh, you know, make that wine. But we always sort of gauged our, how good we were based on the quality of that blend every year. So it was pretty important. Yeah. So, I mean, quite a bit of pressure, as you say, as a 26-year-old to be handling millions of litres of something that profitable, really. Yeah, I can't drink Chenin Blanc anymore. Um, but uh, but uh, it, was, it, no, it, was, it was hugely profitable. So... <laughs> It was a pretty important thing. 
And if you changed it what, one iota, you know, you'd get, you know, 500 letters from, you know, disgruntled customers saying, well, it tastes different this year. So, anyway. So was, was there a recipe, as it were? Um, well, if there was, I get, didn't get it. So, <laughs> no, no, um, th- th- not really. I mean, it was it, sort of and sort of not. I mean, you were sort of always blending to a particular style. I think that was, mm. that was the most important thing. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, I, the, who I learnt my white wine making off, um, you know, you sort of, it's interesting, not so much now, but you could sort of, in terms of modern Australian white wine making, you could sort of draw a, um, a geni- you know, like a lineage of who worked for whom. Mm. And so my boss worked for, you know, Brian Crozer and he worked for someone else and we all made wine in a fairly similar way back then. And Phil, Phil Laffer presumably was an influence, was he on, on the white wines in Australia? He was, but I never had anything to do with Phil. Yeah. I think he was um, making a lot of bin 65 Chardonnay or something at the time, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Was it, was, it, was, it was much more Brian Crozer at Petaluma, yeah. really. Yeah, exactly. So he, Brian Crozer was uh, like, the, you know, he was the, the chief winemaker at Hardy's yeah. way back when. And so my the, the, the guy that I ended up working for, you know, was sort of trained by him. So, mm. sort of, so yes, there, there was a recipe, but that was sort of, it was just, it was passed on, the baton. And then you said you started travelling to Europe to work in wine regions. Where did you go apart from Bordeaux? Oh, God, Italy, um, Sicily, uh, Burgundy, Bordeaux, um, the Loire um, in terms of France. And then obviously I spent, you know, Piedmont, um, you know, lots of places. I've, I made wine, in, you know, in terms of the, the old world. Mm. So I, I did a lot of um, traversing around around Europe for quite a few years and a lot of probably at the time was um, flying winemaking, but I didn't feel it, it's, it wasn't that glamorous. I had, you know, I had knives pulled on me. I was, my life was threatened. Um, but what was I, that? Oh, was that? It was at a, co- a cooperative in the south of France in a village called Servian, and we were making um, – so at the time, um, at the time, um, you know, we used to get sent into these places to make a lot of, you know, varietal white wine for our UK – for our UK part um, of the business. So, you know, you'd go in there and, you know, being being young and maybe uh, not that um, sensitive, you sort of you'd upset the locals pretty easily. So I remember one night, late one night, someone pulled a knife out of me. But, you know, I think at that point in vintage, I said, just do it. I've had enough. I've had enough of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kill me, stab me. I think it was pretty much the case. And after that, they, um, they all fell into line. This guy's crazy. <laughs> Uh, which which region had the most impact on you? I mean, you've got Italian roots, obviously. Do you speak Italian? Um, yeah, look, I do from a, you know, professionally, but um, probably the area that had the most impact on me was Bordeaux. Um, so, you know, and it didn't really make a lot of sense until many years later. So you can imagine a 20-year-old getting dropped into Bordeaux and just sort of seeing, you know, you know centuries of, you know, or, you know, centuries of you know tradition and winemaking and sort of mm. like okay this um what's all this about mm. so you know I, I always loved cabernet um and so being from western australia and you know having having that sort of influences pretty heavily it was something that i really wanted to learn about and did you think the new and old worlds were more of a contrast then than they are now i mean if they moved closer together Absolutely. Um, yeah. There's there's not a lot of um, – there's just not a lot of, you know, in terms of the technical side of things and probably the way wines perform these days, they all perform pretty similarly. You know, mm. it's 
now now it's just you know probably um, from a new world point of view everyone's trying to sort of get a little bit of that you know a little bit of that earth resonating in the glass that's what everyone's working on at the moment mm. yeah i mean with hindsight do you think the flying winemaker movement was a good thing mm. no not particularly i think um you know it's a bit like you know want of a better word it's a bit like sort of setting up mcdonald's everywhere and you know all the chips are the same and all the burgers are the same so it's internationalism i suppose um i think a i i certainly took more back from them from those countries than i probably gave i mean it was it's not hard to make something fresh and bright it's, it's actually really difficult to you know it's taken a long time to sort of get into their heads and understand what what, what it is that, that we're trying to do I, I think it was much more, wasn't it? It was it, not that it was hard to do, but it was hard to convince people. I mean, hence the guy pulling a knife on you, presumably. I don't know. I yeah, don't know he, why he pulled a knife on you. But. <laughs> oh, he's playing cards. He should have been pumping over. But um, but look, you know, the, the most important thing is that, that um, what what we probably are much much better at now is just grow, you know farming. We're um, as a group of um, producers in Australia. Um, you know, we are much better at farming um, than we ever have been. So, and I think that's what, you know, from my impressions, you know, looking back in time, it was always the growing and it was always um, what they were doing in their vineyards because it never really, they never really got too caught up in technique. Mm. Um, it was all about, it was all about, you know, getting that, getting a piece of what they were doing in the glass. Mm. And whereas the was the flying winemaker thing was more correcting things in the winery was it all? Oh, it was just remedial winemaking. It was just uh, getting a batch in and you know, um, and you know, trying to uh, trying to you know fit a trying to create a you know a round peg to fit in a round holes. So yeah. to speak. so you know there was yeah. a lot. And look, that's a real that's a skill um, being able to do that. And um, these days, you know, we grow all of our own grapes. So you know, mm -hmm. I feel less inclined to do that and more inclined just to let it happen a bit more yeah and i think the flying winemaking thing if you like did, did help a lot of producers in places like france and spain and portugal and italy to make better cleaner wines particularly at a, at, at a cheaper level right yeah so i worked for a guy called jacques Laton early on who was doing you know, stuff in the south of france and in spain and all over the place so you know jacques you know, he, he had a particular way of doing things, but it wasn't that dissimilar to, you know, what we were doing. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting, really interesting. And you did further studies at Roseworthy, so you, you didn't get a wine degree, yeah? And then a spell at Hardy's, Tintara, McLaren Vale, and then you went back to Horton, didn't you? So you couldn't get away, right? But was it was it the desire to make all that white burgundy again? No, look, not so. There was an opportunity, and, um, and, you know, back then it was like, okay, I've got this opportunity do I do it? And if I do it, I'm only going to do it for a set amount of time. And while I'm there, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and premium premiumize the place as much as possible. So, so uh, you know, we, we turned it into probably the most you know from a show point of view, it became the most successful winery in the country. Not only for the company, but full stop for, for you know. So you know, job done. You know, it meant it meant you know that you know running a big place like that you either put all your energy into it and eventually it gets to you and you sort of you've got a you, you've got a compromise a fair bit but we but i pretty much had a very uncompromising approach in terms of you know pulling that place up to where it needed to be because it had these amazing fruit resources all around the state mm. and some of it was just getting lost in you know fairly big blends mm. 
Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more about Western Australia, because it's Australia's biggest state, a lot of it's desert, isn't it, really? But it's dwarfed by South Australia when it comes to viticulture and wine production. Just tell us a little bit about its major regions and, you know, the influences of things like the ocean. Yeah, look, um, obviously, you know, m- most of the population in Australia lives around the coast. Um, most of the viticulture, all of the viticulture is not, you know, there's not much viticulture that is more than 50 kilometres, um, you know, inland from from the ocean so everything's heavily you know influenced by by the um by maritime influences um unless it's there's places in the great southern that get a little bit of both of that continentality and 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 the southern ocean influence that's why it works so well but you know western australia to put it in, into perspective for those who probably haven't thought about it the uk fits into western australia 11 times well, and we've only, and we've only got just over two million people, so you know it is it is a really big place. Um, it's probably I, I can't quote the latest figures, but it's twenty it's twenty five percent of Australia's premium production, mm-hmm. but it's less than two percent of Australia's wine production. Mm-hmm. So obviously we've mentioned you know the Swan Valley, um, Margaret River, which is about three hours south, mm-hmm. and that sort of hugs you know there's a place called Cape. Cape Naturalist to Cape Lewin, so that's that little. Pe- it's almost like a peninsula, and it sort of sticks out into the Indian Ocean. And the further south you go, Margaret River, the more influence you get from the Southern Ocean. So we tend to grow um, reds in the north, um, and we grow a lot of whites in the southern areas of Margaret River, where you get the influences of the Indian Ocean and the su- and the Southern Ocean at the same time. So. In in, in in a true sense of a truly maritime climate, there's not better. There's not there's not a lot of better examples than that. Mm. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. And then you sort of work away around your coast, um, and you come to an area called um, Pemberton. And Pemberton's a really interesting area because uh, it's got huge potential for particularly thick skin Northern European whites, which we've got a vineyard there, and we have a lot of those. But for Chardonnay and Pinot, there's not many better places in the state mm. for it. And I think, you know, what we've been doing is just really exploring stylistically what we should be doing because, you know, Margaret River is very much not about Chablis, whereas Pemberton being cool um, does have this ability to, have, you know, produce these wines that have got a lot of this mineral drive that don't need a lot of support. And so it is a beautiful region. Um, Pinots, you know, you don't, you know, you can't make these big sort of structured red wines. They've got to be lovely and pretty and aromatic. And that's taken a few years to work that out. And then as you keep heading south and towards Albany, you have you you stumble across what is what is officially the largest GI or geographical indicator for grape growing in the world. And so um, the Great Southern's bigger than Belgium. And so within that you have um, Franklin River, Denmark, Mount Barker, the Prongrups, um, Albany. Um, you've got all these diverse uh, sub-regions of the Great Southern, but they're not. They're just regions within themselves. And so mm. our biggest um, our biggest focus out of the Great Southern is Franklin River. Mm. And it's really interesting when you think about how far south the Great Southern is, and a lot of it is continental because it's a fair way in from the coast, that when the rest of the state is – so our heat and generally our warm days are driven by these easterly winds that are sort of blowing across the desert mm. um, onto Margaret River and onto Perth. Down there, um, if you think about the Great Australian Bight, mm. so when the easterlies are blowing through, they're actually travelling across water. So it never gets that warm. It's 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 arguably one of the. It's probably apart from 
California, which I did a little lot of work in. It's it's a, it's a it's a very dramatically stable environment, if I suppose if that's one way of putting it. So, you know, the whites are crisp but flavoursome, and the reds have got intense colour, great acidity, but they're all coated with lots of flavour. Mm. So it's a pretty, it's a it's a it's a pretty pretty nice region. And a very diverse, as you're saying. I mean, in 2003, you left Horton, finally, and spent working a bit as a consultant. You set up your own thing, Cherubino Wines, in 2005, and bought a vineyard, I think, yeah. in 04, didn't you? Did just, yeah. what, was your, what was your vision at the time? I and mean, did you think, shit, this is really scary? I mean, was it as scary as taking over a winery when you were 26? Um, so back, if you can imagine back then, 2003, or, you know, leading, you know, 2000, leading into 2003, um, a lot of that, a lot of that heavily intensive pl- vineyard, you know, planting of vines had occurred and it, and it was just going nowhere. Um, you know, the, the industry was pretty much at the rock, at, at, on its knees mm. in terms of um, oversupply and probably, um, you know, our reputation internationally was probably tarnishing somewhat because there were a lot of wines, a lot of, a lot of wines going out to markets um, without a lot of thought. Um, for the long-term harm that they could have and, and may and have done, so we bought a vineyard probably at the bottom of the at the bottom of the market. Um, it was we did really well, but at the end of the day, you still have to fix these things and um, and um, make sure that you can actually do something with the grapes. So that that was the sort of that was the beginning of it. Um, and in terms of a plan, not there was no real plan. It was just like let's just not go broke. <laughs> that was a plan let's make sure we've always got cash and we don't go yeah. broke and, and you started with one vineyard in franklin river didn't you how many hectares have you got now and how many vineyards do you have so in franklin now we have two so there was a vineyard so we have riversdale which is the really important one for us and that's probably primarily responsible for a huge amount of our accolades and qual- and wines and then uh there was another vineyard which was a family vineyard that we've hence bought bought and that was a uh, that was a 200-acre vineyard that got basically, um, t- you know, chainsawed back to about uh, uh, 30 acres. Mm. So, so you know, um, that's been a pro- – and we, we took that on about six years ago, so that's been a process of slow rebuilding. Mm. But, you know, the, the thing there and what we're really happy with is we've got a really diverse range of um, varietals that we've been trialling in that area, and I can talk a bit more more about that in a moment and then pemberton which is about 70 hectares and that's just there's half that is chardonnay so you can imagine um that's a really important one for us and pemberton has probably got the most stable rainfall in the state so you know we can get in excess of 1.6 meters of rain there so it's pretty handy Mm. Uh, you know we haven't seen we haven't seen spikes in temperature but what we have seen particularly in margaret river and places is a drop off of the volume of rain, whereas Pemberton, even if it drops off by twenty percent, it's still a lot of available water. So that's a hugely, hugely important long term project, and we're making more and more wines that are coming out our, under our top labels from that particular vineyard. Hmm. And then Margaret River, in terms of vineyard area that we actually control, it's the least. It's obviously the most expensive, but we have Carradale in the south. Hmm. We have a vineyard located mid. Mid Margaret River called uh, Witchcliff, and then obviously one in Willie Abrup. But primarily, um, our big focus in, in Margaret River is, is, is Chardonnay. Um, mm. We make a little bit of Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc, 
Um, but you know, given the cost of land, the cost of farming, um, you never get enough. You can make beautiful wines of that of that nature, but you just never get enough for them. So you know, we've just made sure that we're actually growing things that we can actually um, uh, get a return on. That's pretty important. And you farm sustainably, don't you? Yeah, so in, interestingly, um, we didn't go down the organic route or the biodynamic route. Um, certainly a lot of the products and a lot of the principles and being, a, being a, you know, an agriculturalist or an agronomist or whatever you want to call it, um, you, know, I, you know, from a scientific point of view, I always looked at things and go, well, what are, what are they actually trying to do, you know, from a, from a, um, from a biodynamic point of view or an, organ- or an organic point of view? Certainly, all of the products that we use and a lot of our techniques are very much conventional, biodynamic, organic, and we've sort of got this very hybridised method of farming because um, we've just taken the best of best of everything. And you know, even the large chemical companies now, everything they're doing, they're all biological controlled. You know, th- they have no choice but to use a lot of these products. Mm-hmm. But for us, um, the most important thing is, you know, from a sustainable point of view is that we've been working to build up our carbon levels in our soil for the last sort of eight or nine years. Um, you know, and a, a stupid little number is that, you know, if you can increase your soil organic matter by 1%, it means you have an extra 100,000 litres of available moisture in your soil. Mm. And so we've seen our wines, um, at the and, and primarily in red wines, we've seen the quality of the tannins in those red wines just get better and better. You know, there's less, they're less exposed. There's more available water. Our nutrition is very good. They go throughout the whole summer without showing any signs of stress. Mm-hmm. So we're at a point where um, five years ago we had our carbon levels tested, and two, three weeks ago we had our carbon levels tested, and we've increased them by two and a half percent, which means um, we'll get our food, you know, our food sustainability accreditation, but. Also, it means that we can start trading carbon and paying for some of our uh, investment because we've been doing huge amounts of mid-row cropping, uh, and these these all of these things are, are not new, you know, in the old world. It's, it's been happening forever, but certainly modern viticulture ten years ago in Australia really became quite industrialised, mm-hmm. and it was, and um, and it's just not sustainable, you know, in terms of um, you know trying to grow the cheapest product for us. You'd, there's so much competition out there, so we've got to grow the best product. Hmm. Tell us a little bit more about your fascination with, with clones, because I think that's something that you brought back from Europe in a sense, didn't you? Yeah, so, um, you know, if you have a look at historically Australia, basically everything just sort of exploded probably from, a you know, a number of source blocks, and clone really wasn't wasn't an issue. And so... You know, if you're blessed with pretty good climate and, and a way of doing things, it's it's less of an issue. But certainly, um, and you know, and most of the most of the planting material that went in the ground was selected by vine improvement societies, and they had probably three things that they focused on, and one was disease resistance mm-hmm. um, and yield, or probably two. You know, and it was all about it wasn't about flavour, and it wasn't about texture, and it wasn't about colour and tannin. So, um, and I thought, well. You know, if we're going to develop and really push our vines and our wines forward, we need to have that diversity of genetic material. Um, and look, it's no different. It's no different to being a, 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 you know, growing up on a dairy farm, you'd always go out and buy the best bulls 
because you'd always want the you know so what's you know ha- having that having that genetic diversity is really important probably on a vineyard level because that's where you get complexity mm-hmm. and that's where you get interest so you know we brought in we've got probably the state's biggest plantings or genetic plantings of probably chardonnay and um and cabernet and and syrah and then we've got other things that we've been working with um, mediterranean varieties that we've been working with but clonal clonal diversity is really important um i can't stress it you know um you know particularly with chardonnay 10 years ago someone said to me oh what's the point of all of that i said it was actually really it's it's wait and see just watch this space so it's mm-hmm. become a very and, you know and everyone in margaret river talks about a ginger clone which i'm sure you've heard of mm. but, but really no one cares all they want is a good drink and all they want is a is something that's complex and tasty and you're not going to get that by you know by with monoculture mm. interesting i mean how many wines do you make now there's quite a few ranges aren't there <clears throat> too many <laughs> um we've got about six ranges but Look, our business is pretty interesting because we've got on top of the winery stuff, we've got venues around around WA. So we've got the cellar door, we've got the restaurant. I'm sitting in the bar in, in the city at the moment, but it's not just about our wines. We sell, you know, four or five hundred wines at this venue. Um, but you know, so we can make these small little little offerings of a hundred cases here and there, and, and run them through to our private wine club and our drinkers and our and our followers. And then obviously we have a core range of wines that we sell wholesale. Um, obviously in the UK, I mean, our model and our business model is perfect for the UK given it's taken me 30 years to work out how the, the thing works, but in terms of, you know, the on and off and then all the little guys at, at the regional wholesalers. So it's actually worked for, worked for us really well because we're able to place different products and different ranges with different customers and more or less, you know, you can't keep everyone happy all the time, but you can try. Mm. I'm particularly interested by the wine. I think there are 12 of them in your laissez-faire lineup. Yeah. Just tell us about the grape varieties involved because you've got some some really fascinating stuff in there. Yeah, so um, we've got Menthia. So we had a 10-hectare block um, in Franklin and we planted a whole range of varieties there. And, um, and so we gave them – they had to perform three years in a row from a quality point of view, otherwise they, they were out. Mm. And they also had to be, you know – moderately enjoyable to farm and they had to be you know productive so the things that came out of that were fiano mm. anise mm. menthia tariga um and obviously there's a few other things we've got gruner veltner that's sort of coming up um and obviously then we have uh different varieties that are sort of focusing in pemberton where we've got pinot blanc mm. um, um sorry Pinot Grigio wasn't even a thing in this state 15 years ago. Um, it's okay. I mean, I'm I'm never gonna I'm never gonna um I'm never gonna uh, I'm never gonna love it. But it's, so we've got quite a bit of that. Um, and then you know other uh, other blending whites. So you know we're actually really interested in making some of these really interesting white blends that we've got in that range. So we've got a fill blend as well. And then uh, we have a Syrah in Laissez-Faire, which is all the new clones and a Pinot. Do you think Australia's been too focused on French varieties for most of its history? I mean, is that changing? It is. And I think, um, look, having our time again, and if we looked at our climate and we, um, we are a Mediterranean climate, um, we are, you know, in parts where we, there, are, there are pockets that are, you know, probably more like northern Italy rather than more like northern Europe, mm. um, that, and that's a generalisation. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the whole model, the whole Australian model was built off France, the French model. Mm-hmm. And um, some of those varieties are just way too sensitive. And so um, we're, we're, we are having, we've got a huge push at the moment to really drive a lot of Italian varietals uh, into our port, into our, the wines that we make because we see that as being very much part of the future. And particularly with climate change, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they use less water. They're more resilient. They've got thicker skins. Um, they just, they're delicious. Mm. And, um, they just suit what we're doing what, here so well. So, yeah, there's nothing flimsy about them. Mm. I mean, you're saying you're making all these ranges yourself, like six different ranges. Do you consult for other people still or not? <clears throat> no, look, I, um, I'm the director of winemaking for Robert Oatley, but essentially a lot of the work that I was doing for lots of others um that's that sort of finished finished quite some time ago i just want to be able to focus we we grow a lot we farm and grow a lot of grapes so some of those some of those clients have turned into customers where they they buy grapes from us um i think there's a there's a lot more um a lot more satisfaction in giving them a really good bunch of grapes and it is sort of trying to tell them what to do with it (laughs) i think that's definitely true isn't it tell us a little bit about how you describe you know the excesses of the late 90s and 2000s how has australian wine changed i mean what what caused those those excesses in the in the late 90s and 2000s look without just without being disrespectful to anybody i think you know australia had a policy which was uh 2025 and in 2025 we we needed x amount of vineyard in the ground to meet all the demands for Australian wine around the world. Um, so back in 1990, late 1998, we reached 2025 in about 2003. We got there 22 years ahead of schedule. And so um, the, the architects of some of those policies, and, and look, they were, they, were, they were largely pretty good, but the architects and, and of those policies sought um, tax advantage where if you normally you'd buy an asset and it takes 25 years from a, from a tax point of view to depreciate that asset, um, there was accelerated depreciation on on viticultural investment. Mm. So as a consequence, everybody was doing it to get the tax to get the tax benefit of of spending large amounts of money up front. Mm. And so a lot of you know the average vine age you know went from whatever it was to almost zero overnight. Mm. Um, a lot of industrial viticulture a lot of uh a lot of inexperience so a lot of people managing large-scale vineyards without really understanding the process but really not understanding the um the impacts and you know what needed to happen so as a consequence you know the wines um the wine really did suffer Mm. so expanded too quickly and for the wrong reasons really yeah 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 yeah. and and so what happened to the wine was it just dilute because of because of Um, it was this young, young, not not necessarily dilute, young, um, lack of attention to detail. Um, you know, there was the, the market completely collapsed at that point, um, and so you know, it, you know, th- there was just mass mass um, mothballing of vineyards occurring after that, where people were just mm-hmm. cutting it and turning sheep into their vineyards because they couldn't afford to run them. Mm. And has Australia come out the other side now? It was coming out, and obviously um, some trade embargoes with China have really had a major impact on the volume of wine leaving the country. That's sort of a work in progress, but I don't think that's – even when that gets resolved, it's not going to be a silver bullet. It's, nothing's going to happen overnight. So 
Some regions are faring better than others, but others, particularly red wine, heavily red wine focused regions, um, it's it's tricky. Mm. And WA is argu- arguably in a better position because it's got less wine, and as you said, it tends to produce more premium wine, doesn't it? Yeah. Look, the, the biggest problem is is that you're, you're not insulated from it because uh, you know if if there was a bottle of wine from another region that was selling for thirty dollars, and now that bottle of wine's all of a sudden fifteen. Most consumers are going to go, particularly in the you know economically, it's it's not the easiest time for anybody out there. They look at it and go, well, that used to be thirty. I'm going to, I, I might go and buy that for fifteen. I, I don't think I'll buy that Margarita Cabernet for thirty. Mm. And get this one, and you know what? I'll 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 live with the compromise. So you, you just it's it's typical it's typical agricultural product. Someone else's someone else's pain is your gain, and someone else's and your pain is someone else's gain, and essentially, we're we're, we're suffering a little bit at, the, at that at the moment. Mm. And you said you're sitting in your bar uh, yeah. in Perth, yeah? Um, yeah. That's absolutely lovely. I have to say, <laughs> just tell me, you're so busy, you know, you flying around, but also all these wine projects you're doing. Do, do you have time to get away from wine? I mean, do you need to? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do. I do. Um, I do have a time of the year where I just don't drink it and look I'm not a you know I I I certainly enjoy it um but you know it's one of the things of the industry you got to be careful with uh, being in the industry but certainly no look my time is spent uh my time is spent down on the coast or in a garden somewhere um that's how I sort of tend to shut off yeah and how long do you have off wine then sorry but how long do you have off wine where you're not drinking it uh, probably about a month um, same month every year or not is it dry january no well it's not so, well not so much dry january but sometimes i even over christmas sometimes i just i just take i just right into moderation because yeah. i'm pretty relaxed and so you know um you know i was in you know i i just yeah you just gotta and sometimes you come back and you're a lot more sharper and focused in terms of what you're tasting yeah and you're not a surfer are you lots of people are surfers <laughs> Oh look! I got a, I got scared by a big shark once, and that was the end of my career. Not that I had. <laughs> I do spend, spend a lot of time in the water. A lot of time. Yeah. I like boating. I like boating a lot. Yeah, boating. You're safer from the sharks, right? Yeah, yeah. You can watch them. <laughs> Listen, Larry, it's been fantastic talking to you. Congratulations on all these awards you keep winning, uh, and enjoy it, man. It's deserved. No, very much appreciated. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Right. Larry isn't just a winemaker, is he? He's a personality and a deep thinker too. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is wine PR guru, Rosamund Barton from R&R Teamwork. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.